Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. I want you to just sit back and see what God has for you in this message because I believe that God laid this message on my heart. We're writing the scriptures and you can connect into it just as easily. There's something in there for you. But I also want you to know that as an expositor, that's a person who's going to teach you the Bible verse by verse, that the Bible doesn't just stand on only one verse. It's often connected together. Then you get into something known as systematic theology that not only is it connected together, it's connected to the entire embodiment of truth. Our series is going to conclude today on the subject of where does joy begin in your life? And so let me ask you a question. How many of you have had some challenges this last week in your life? And if you're not really sure, let me see if I can give you some. How many of you had some bit of a challenge in a relationship with someone in your life? A boss, upward, downward, sideways, all right. How many of you had a challenge with some finances? You were hit with an unexpected breakdown that you had to spend money on. How many of you have been faced with that challenge this week? How many of you have been infected this week with some kind of bug? Maybe you had a little bit of a germ this week. Would you raise your hand? Okay, good. If you have, I'd like you to separate from the people, quarantine you. All right. So we've all had that before. And normally our lingo will go something like this. We'll say, how you been feeling this week? Oh, I've had some problems. Problems with finance, fitness, family, friends, foes, whatever it might be. Well, I know that can be the case. And I don't want to do a word game here on you and the word problems. But I also want to make sure that we who are Christians know that even though we have problems, there are nothing more than opportunities for us to sense the presence of God to be able to get through these issues and challenges closer to the Lord and handle it more appropriately. Now, remember how I asked you those questions, how many of you have had all these things? Here's a question I want to ask you as a follow-up one. How did you handle that? Did you get stressed out? Did you kind of bark and bite at the people around you? Was there something going on where you maybe at that moment had lost your joy? In the midst of my week, and I too had a little bit of a bug in the middle of the week, I also had problems with my anti-theft device on my car. It kept going off even when my car wasn't being stolen, and that in itself is embarrassing when you go to your car at 5 o'clock in a residential area in the morning. So that doesn't make neighbors very happy. So we've had those challenges. But the real question is, is not that we're going to have challenges or not. The Bible says that man is appointed unto troubles as the sparks fly upward in a campfire. And so we're going to have troubles. I guarantee that this week you're going to have a so-called another problem. But how do we handle it? Well, as I was going through this week, I had a few moments to read a magazine that uh, Pastor Dennis and I and the team gets. It's called Rev Magazine. There are some articles in there are good. This one struck me because I like to read biographies of great people. And this one was an interview that was done by the son of Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. Well, obviously he's in heaven now, but the son was being interviewed growing up in Bill Bright's homes. And they had a lot of questions, but the one that I wanted to focus on here for us for today is this. They asked him the question, your dad seemed like the typical type A mega ministry leader. How did he maintain his relaxed spirit amid all the pressures he obviously went through? Now, this blessed me so much, and I wanted to share the blessing of the answer with you. And here's how Bill Bright's son responded, Brad. He said, you just asked the critical question. The genius of Bill Bright is that he understood who God was. He understood who God was and what difference that made. Let me tell you about a time it first really dawned on me what this dynamic meant. I was about 25 years old, which I thought was interesting. He was finally probably old enough to grab this. 
He says, I was sitting in his office and there was a reporter from a local Christian magazine who asked him, Dr. Bright, share with us an example from your own life about a problem you face that the average Joe Christian can relate to. And dad said, I don't have any problems. <laughs> the reporter said, don't over-spiritualize this. We all have problems. Well, this dear guy asked the question seven times, seven different ways, and finally my dad turned to him and said, young man, you need to understand that I understand that I am a slave of Jesus, and a slave doesn't have problems. The only thing the slave has to do is what the master asks of him. He doesn't have to be successful. And when you really understand that, all of a sudden you don't have problems anymore. All that's left is opportunities, here it is, to see God work. At that moment, it hit me like a ton of bricks. This explains the guy I have always called dad all these years. I had seen him go through the incredible stressful situations, cliffhanger situations, times when the entire ministry of Campus Crusade was on the verge of collapsing. And I, never, I, I, I know he never missed a bit of sleep. I never saw him get stressed out about this stuff. Growing up, I was the active child, as my mom said, but I cannot remember him ever raising his voice at me in anger in all those years. But it's because he had such an overpowering sense of who God was that he was serving. And he understood very clearly that God's role was and what his role was. His role was simply to do whatever the master asked him to do. It was not his role to be successful. And here's the point. And he, my dad, internalized that fact. So that day I heard him say, I realized that when he made that statement, it was a statement that was coming out of his gut. It was a visceral statement right from his heart. It wasn't an intellectual head statement that so many of us would make. And I thought that was so blessed for me because it wasn't going to eliminate or cause me to deny the fact that I'll have problems. But what I'm going to look at that problem now is not to see it merely as a problem, but it is now an opportunity to see God work. And I can do that once I know who God is and who I am, which now leads us to the first line of this whole book of Philippians. When Paul now writes into these people, while he himself is in prison, he still says this. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. So the only thing I'd like to do is, your shepherd, is to help move us all along in the direction of who is God, is he working in our life, and are we willing to be a love slave of him? And then we can say, with all of that, we can have joy. We can sleep at night. There's no stress really coming into our life because he is our stress reliever. So frankly stated this way. We don't have a life without problems, but we do have a life with a problem solver in it. Well, going on a little bit further, again, catching up those who are our guests here today, besides submitting ourselves to Christ, we also need to, if we're going to have joy in our life, to understand those people that are around us, to kind of give them some space. And so the first thing that he says is he's writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus. The saints are everyone who's trusted Christ as Savior. It's not a particular level of religiosity. It's just a person who's trusted Christ. That says they're in Christ. Then he talks about the bishops and the deacons, and that's where I want to kind of park today. Last week, we gave you a full expose on what is a bishop. We said there are five different terms that could be used different ways, but referring to the same office in Scripture. That would be the term today that most likely would be used as a pastor or an elder. So pastor, elder, shepherd, overseer, same office. And so we mentioned last week, we learned about shepherds as being overseers in all those different capacities. 
But also in the church, if we want to have joy, God says that there's going to be challenges in the church. Now, to help out those challenges, I'm going to establish a particular group of people known as deacons. And that's why in this context, he is saying, I'm writing to those of you who are believers in Christ, but I'm also writing to those that are shepherding you at Philippi, but I'm also writing to those of you who are deaconing, we might say, at Philippi. So that being the case, we're going to learn about deacons as servants now because that's primarily what the word deacon really means. So they're really referring to a servant. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of explain to you, after being in ministry for some 30-odd years and serving in various churches and being involved in a lot of churches, here is what I've come to understand about how deacons are often either seen in a church or how they function in a church. And I'm not saying this is right or wrong right now. I'm letting you know how they're often seen. The first group of deacons in some churches, they're seen as a power position people. In other words, they're given the keys to the church to hold either the leadership pastors accountable or they're the ones that are making all the major decisions that regard to the spiritual development. They kind of run the church. They'd be like your CEOs of the church. And so they see themselves as that. The problem with it is when you find it in scripture, every time the word deacon is mentioned in a Greek word, it always refers back to a minister or a servant, but never as an overseer type of individual. So that wouldn't fit together, especially since there's a position in the church for those who would give this spiritual oversight of the flock. So that would be purely an overbalance. The next one would be, and this is often seen in churches, they become what we call property or building managers. In other words, they are reduced from this level of serving others to the point of nothing more than being a glorified custodian of the church. They're given the keys. They're responsible for fixing all the problems in the building, the plumbing, the electrical. They become nothing more than custodians. And when you look in scripture, you're going to find that they don't merely do the things of the church as much as they're still involved with certain people in the church. So it's a relational responsibility, even though it takes care of tasks and physical, it's not connected to the building or the facility of the church as much as it is of the facilitating of the people in the church. So now there's a third imbalance. So some of you, if you go back, you're going to see that some deacons become either the boss of the church or they become nothing more than the custodian of the church. Then some churches, they see that the word servant means that they're to be a servant and they should be a servant of all. And so they then buy in, the deacons are to be servants. But now they put them into what is known as an unlimited facet. So now you have these poor deacons out here because they want to live up to this job of being a servant in the church, that they have to do everything in the church, be it every single event in the church, every need that's in the church, whatever it might be, because they are your epitome of model servants of everyone. And that true is not a part of what God has to say in Scripture. So as you go through scripture, there are some glimpses we might see of what a deacon might be. First of all, the qualifications that they would have. You would see their descriptive titles. You would see their responsibilities that they have. And when you begin to put this picture together, all of a sudden, the true deacon comes out of the fog of not just being a CEO or being nothing more than a custodian or having to be at everything, but now they take on, listen now, a very unique and special and a rewarded position in the church. In fact, it even says that they're specially rewarded in a role that they play when they stay within that. And now what happens is the church is better run or served in that capacity and more joy is done in a church like that. So I hope that you would keep that in mind. So the ministry of deacons. So let's look at them now. Number one, they're descriptive titles. 
And they have a number of different titles, and I've given you most of the Greek words that are found in the New Testament. And it's not important that you know Greek, but it is interesting how that it is translated servant or minister or deacon or sir or minister or service or ministry, and even one word is translated as the word slave. Now, I'm giving you kind of the ballpark uh, understanding of this. I'm not giving you all the letter of the law, but enough for you to understand what it might mean. Now, as our church continues to grow, there will be people that are going to be afflicted and suffering and have a particular need in their life. And those are the people, now here's where you've got to come up to, and that is those afflicted people that have special needs in their life. It is to that group of people that the deacons need to be properly qualified, evaluated, examined, and approved and released to serve that particular group of people. When you look in scripture, you're going to see that it parallels the idea of serving, and you also see the idea of people that have a particular need. Now, when I was preparing this message, I decided to go into the heart of God on his heart toward people that are suffering or the afflicted. I almost would need an entire Sunday to take you through the Old Testament illustrations of people that were looked at as heroes in the Old Testament because their primary care was for the afflicted. What God has to say to people in leadership, to those who are afflicted, the special needs that afflicted people that have around us, Old Testament. If I moved into the New Testament, you're going to see that God knows that the poor will always be with us. He already states that. And we need to take care of the poor. And as we do, we're giving back to God. So God has a big heart to the afflicted. So much so that he wants now to call out a group of people that are qualified that give their greatest attention to serving the afflicted, but at the same time awakening the body to make sure that we don't neglect those who are afflicted. Now the caveat of all of that is this. There will be people that are afflicted because they make their own choices. Sometimes um, they are there because they have misfired where God wanted them to do that, and so God brought that affliction on them. But there are other people that no matter how hard they paddle, no matter how fast they run, they can't get ahead of the game of the afflictions that keep coming at them. And I'm wondering if sometimes that the Lord allows those people to come into our life that we can help them. One more thought and then I'll move on. And that is this. Because these people have special needs, it requires a person that has special qualifications to be able to touch those people. And so we look at that, number two, in the character qualities. And we're moving from Philippians now. We're going back to the book of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 through 12. If I could speak to the young people for just a second right here, all right? Now, young people, you're here at this moment, and um, it's very easy for you to zone out of this message because you're thinking about deacons, and you're hearing, like, right now, all I care about is school is starting. I've got to get along with my buds at school. I've got to be able to get things done for my mom and dad. I want to go to the beach one more time. Maybe I can go to another island, go surfing, whatever. And so this message on deacons, he doesn't speak to me. I don't get anything out of it. I don't learn anything from that preacher there. What, what you have to do right now is you have to understand that all Scripture is profitable for us to be able to do good works. This Scripture, even though you're not a deacon yet, I want you to know you can still engage in that. So let me give you some ways you could stay engaged. So would you listen very carefully? Number one, you pray for the men and the women in this church that they would engage into this message to say, Lord, how can I become a qualified person to serve in an area of being a deacon? So you pray for our people, that our men, our ladies here that want to serve, that they would step up and say, I want to grow to that next level to care for those that are afflicted. The second thing you can do is this. Some people that are older now should be at the level where they are qualified to be a deacon and called to do that, but they have not paid the price to live a spiritually disciplined life. 
you, at this stage in your life, you can say, you know what? What the pastor is about to go through on this list, I'm now going to ask God by his power to bring these character traits out into my life so that I could already be ahead of the game as I get older so that someday I might be a deacon. And then I'm going to give you an application that is not an interpretation of this passage. So here's what I mean by that. Even if you're not a deacon, these are character traits that every single one in this room, everyone listening to this message, radio or CD, should aspire to in their own life. These are good traits that help us to better relate to other people. So whether you're male or female, whether you're young or old, they're still good. So that makes it easy for us to find a deacon because everybody is aspiring to this and they're seeing these character traits lived out in their life. So now we need a deacon. Automatically we say, man, there's so many folks that could fit that, that uh, position here. So let's look at them, and I'm going to rattle through these quickly. When we go through 1 Timothy, and I teach you that, I'll spend a lot more time on each one, but let's look at it together. So, kids, for you, it's likewise a leader in the youth department. For the rest of us, likewise, those who are be deacons or those of us who will be in a position to um, suggest a person for a role of a deacon, that person must be reverent. In your margin, you might want to put it, put it down there and put a person of dignity, a person of dignity. And if I can balance it this way... They would not be so serious that they would be somber. They, you don't want to have a person who always walks around like they've been weaned on a dill pickle. You know, everything is bad. If it rains soup, all it has is a fork. Nothing goes right for me. You don't want to have someone that you think dignity means that he is very somber. On the other side, you would not go to a deacon if every time he showed up at church, he had a, a, a clown outfit on and a, and, a, and a horn on his belt here, honk, honk, and a twirling bow tie. You don't want to have a slapstick person. So a person of dignity has a proper balance. Probably the best way to do that is he has a sweet spirit seriousness. And he's not silly and he's not somber, but he's sober. And that brings us to the next one, which is he's not double-tongued. Now, double-tongued is an interesting word, but probably the best way to apply that would mean that he's not a hypocrite. He would not be saying one thing to one person in the church and then be saying something else about the same topic to someone else. So in other words, he gives you the same message. And generally, watch this now, a double-tongued person is a double-minded person. And a double-minded person is generally um, a person who is unstable in all of their ways and thus would not be trusted. Listen carefully. Dobson brought this out, and I, I think there's a lot of truth in it. He says, when you have a communication breakdown between people, it's because you've had a trust breakdown. The reason you've lost trust in that person is you've lost respect for that person. And so if a person is to be trusted as a deacon, then he needs to give the same message. So that means he's not double-tongued. Not given to much wine. Again, it's the phrase, not beside the wine barrel, too much. Now, I need to hasten to say this because some people say, well, does that mean that a deacon can drink wine? The better question to answer is this. Is the wine that is mentioned in the Bible days the same recipe that is the wine that you might drink today when you go to the store? And I think once you do your study on the determining the factor, are we comparing the same recipes together? And what I'm finding is that the recipe of the Bible days is a much different recipe than we have today. So the real issue is, are you addicted to something that causes you to not have clear thinking? And so not to be that. Now, it says not greedy for money. Obviously, you're going to find that often deacons are involved in somehow receiving money or carrying money, etc. But I want to take it more that they're not stealing money. It's that they're not using the position of deacon to further their business or to further some form of economics in their own life. So they're not greedy of money. So they're not using their position to advance their own personal cause. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Next to the phrase pure conscience, just put a clear conscience. 
that they have a conscience that when they have violated it through a sin, a thought, talk, or walk, that they've confessed it. They've taken responsibility. They've made restitution, that their conscience is cleared before God and before others. Then it says, but let these also first be tested. It's in the particular tense in the Greek, which means they're always in a constant state of being evaluated to see if they're measuring up to a stable life of growing in grace. All right? So that they're doing this. And by the way, that same phrase is used for those who are elders as well. That it's not just a one-time test, it's a continual test. Then it says, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Again, it doesn't mean that they've never sinned before, but it means that whatever sin they've taken responsibility, they've forsaken it, and they do not have that characteristic sin, uh, that sin characterized again in their life. Then it says, likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. Let me speak to that for a moment. Again, this section here has caused me a great... I spent more time studying that little phrase more than anything else. And so some of you are all awake now, especially because you want to know, what is his position? Well, I don't, I don't want to shock you on this, but I have read tremendous scholars that are known for their understanding of the Greek, and they don't agree on their own interpretation. I mean, they're sitting on opposite ends of this stuff. So I'm going to give you the two positions that they hold... And then I'm going to suggest a third position and, and why I'm probably leaning more to my third position. First one, they say, well, in the Bible here, it says, likewise, their wives must be reverent. So this must refer to the wife of a deacon. Well, I'm not sure it would do that because my, my logic would tell me that if, why is it important that a wife of a deacon have qualifications where a wife of an elder doesn't have them listed? Doesn't make sense, does it? So I don't know that it means that. Secondly... The word wives there, there's two Greek words for the word wives, and um, the word wife here is not in the Greek, all right? This is a different word. It's the word gunikas, or guni, and not that women are guni, Carol. Okay, all right, let me make sure I got to go home with her, all right? But it's not, a, it's not the word wife there. And so then they say, okay, if it's not the wife of a deacon, it must be another position known as a deaconess. And so they kind of drive that home, and sometimes they'll link back to Romans chapter 16, verse 1 and following, because there's a lot of women there. Seems like you're using the same word in that context, etc. The problem with that is, now I'm going to get real technical, and then we'll come up for air and move on. The real problem with that is, is that there was no word in the Bible during the Bible days for the word deaconess. All right? That is what we call a post-biblical word that came after the Bible was written. So it doesn't mean deaconess necessarily, nor does it really mean it has to be a special position of a wife. So now, a uh, wife of a deacon. So then what could this mean? All right, here's, here's my interpretation of it. I think if I want to hold to the, to the technical end of this, I believe it is referring to a group of women who have a position of influence in the church because the list is elders, position. Deacons, it is referred to as a diaconate, a team, a qualified group. So here they're not given a name deaconess, they're just women. But these women in a list of leadership have to have certain qualities, and it's listed here. Now, though the word deaconess may not have been used during the, the time of the Bible reading, it is post-biblical but very close to it and maybe it was created afterwards to describe this group of people. So does that leave a possible window open for women to become deacons? I think it is quite possible. Now, here's where the, the option is. Does that mean they serve at the same time in the same exact capacity as the deacon board? I'm not so sure that it does because of other reasons. But at this point, it does not mean that women cannot have a position of leadership 
of influence, that they're recognized as such, as perhaps a group that has that, where that they can be made or called upon to be making decisions that will affect predominantly women as it fits under women teaching women, etc. So I'm leaving the door open for a position here for women, in my opinion of it, but I won't die on a hill that you have to have deaconesses in the church. I think it permits a position of influence of ladies. So ladies, some of you that might be smugly out there thinking about all these men, I hope they all live like that. May I encourage all of you and wave and all the ladies of this church that you would be reverent, which you would be a woman of dignity, that you would not be a slanderer. And we could talk about gossip. We could also talk about being double-tongued. It kind of gives you a broad stroke there. Temperate, which means that you offer self-control in your, what you think, what you talk, your money. Your, well, let me do it this way. You're, you're self-controlled in your time, talent, tongue, treasure, and temple. Okay? And then you're faithful in all things, that you're dependable, uh, faithful to your marital vows, faithful to your kids, faithful to, if you're a single, that you're faithful to your, your uh, holiness, all the things that you should be too. Then it goes on to say for the qualifications, let the deacons be the husband of one wife. I lean in the position that this is a moral character for the church, not necessarily a marital status, because it talks about a one-woman sort of man. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.